From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA executive producer Steve Reddish and VOA Midwest correspondent Kane Farabaugh. Welcome, Steve and Kane. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, here are the issues. China's President Xi Jinping and Russia's President Vladimir Putin set their sights on shaping a new world order as the Chinese leader left Moscow, having made no direct support for Putin's war in Ukraine during his two-day visit. The International Criminal Court accused Putin of war crimes for illegally deporting children from Ukraine, the move which obligates the court's 123 member states to arrest Putin and transfer him to The Hague if he sets foot in their territories, caused outrage at the Kremlin. South Korea said North Korea fired multiple cruise missiles off its east coast, the latest in a series of weapons tests as South Korean and the U.S. forces conduct joint military exercises. The Federal Reserve hiked interest rates by a quarter percentage point after numerous failures in the banking sector had prompted some analysts on Wall Street to call for a pause. A grand jury is continuing to weigh charges against former President Donald Trump in connection with the Manhattan District Attorney's probe into the 2016 hush payment to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Chinese leader Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin signed two agreements, one affirming their partnership and one setting out plans for economic cooperation. So, Steve, how was the U.S. and NATO responding to this China-Russia alliance? Cautiously. They're looking at this with an askance eye. There was concern before the meeting that China's President Xi would bring a major peace plan and offer it up and there'd be a lot of pressure put on the U.S., NATO, Ukraine to basically freeze Russia's gains in Ukraine, have a ceasefire, which would have been very disadvantageous to Ukraine for sure. But in the hours since the meeting, there seems to be a little bit more of a sigh of relief and quite a bit of perhaps concern, certainly a lot of observation that President Putin needed this meeting with Xi much more than Xi needed the meeting with Putin. While there was no promise specifically or publicly that China will be providing weapon systems to Russia, there certainly is going to be some economic advantages to this for China. Russia already provides China with most of its oil, and now more energy is going to go to China. I think there's a lot of observers out there who are wondering, what did Putin get out of this meeting other than the appearance of being backed by China? There are a lot of observers who are seeing this as China perhaps now finishing off the deal and now in a much more powerful position than Russia seems to be in. You know, China has actually tried to negotiate or at least tried to insert itself into establishing a peace process whereas the war in Ukraine would come to an end. But one of the biggest problems with the Chinese plan is that it doesn't actually indicate a withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukraine. China's effort, I think, to intermediate or mediate this dispute is problematic in that it doesn't actually do anything that the Ukrainians insist need to happen in order to move forward with starting negotiations that would end that war. 
but it is trying to be seen as an objective arbiter in the war. And I think that there are some things that happened in the joint press conference. For instance, they both agreed, uh, Putin and Xi, that nuclear war must never be unleashed. And so that, in some ways, is an antidote to maybe some of the rhetoric that Putin has been expressing over the last several months, at least indicating that he's got the nuclear weapons. But, you know, another thing that was very interesting that happened during this entire summit between Putin and Xi, it hasn't gotten as much news, but it is just as dramatic. The prime minister of Japan, Fumio Kishida, he made a visit to Kiev at the same time that Xi was meeting with Putin. And this is the first time a leader of Japan has visited a country in conflict since the Second World War. It seems that there's a lot of international positioning here in order to assert, I guess, a new demonstration of who's on whose side here. And I guess one can only hope that at least all of this posturing leads to some kind of path to peace in Ukraine. It was an interesting kind of look at a split screen where you have Putin and Xi on one side of the screen and the Japanese prime minister and Ukraine's president Zelensky on the other side of the screen, showing how the two major Asian powers, where they're putting their support. The big issue as far as China's ability to be a neutral arbiter, someone who can perhaps bring this to a close, is understanding what the Ukrainians want. And so far, Zelensky has you know, raised his hand and said, hey, we're over here it would be nice if President Xi, it would be nice to talk to you before you set down any parameters about any kind of peace plan. There are reports that conversations are taking place for Xi to talk directly to Zelensky, but it has not happened yet. And also the White House has accused Xi of providing diplomatic cover for Putin after the ICC issued a warrant for his arrest last week, a largely symbolic move as Russia, like the United States, does not accept the court's jurisdiction. So is this alliance, could this also be, as you all brought this out earlier, is more of a business partnership to benefit them both more so than a friendship, even though she called Putin his dear friend? Well, I think that they are ideologically aligned in so many different ways that coming to an agreement on some of the points that they reached an agreement on was perhaps a foregone conclusion anyway. But, you know, another thing, too, is that Russia needs the economic relationship with China because of its war in Ukraine. Its traditional economic ability to deliver energy supplies, you know, gas and oil has been curbed somewhat in Europe. And so finding another way to market that now through China, one of the biggest substantive things that came out of this was they're going to build a pipeline that's going to run to China through Mongolia, and that's going to easily allow Russia to be able to deliver these supplies to China now. And I think really it was an opportunity, if anything, for China to show that it is a player in this conflict. It is a country and a force to be reckoned with diplomatically and economically. And whatever's happening in Ukraine isn't going to stop whatever the relationship is between Russia and China from developing and moving forward. Xi is stepping into a growing void for Russia as the economic sanctions have taken a hit. Russia can no longer sell energy to the West. That source of financing, that source of money is effectively shut off. So he's turning his sights eastward, looking more toward China and the rest of Asia as a market for Russia's biggest natural resource, which is oil. And it does seem that the United States is trying to 
isolate and use the international criminal court's indictment of Putin as a war criminal in a way to either shame China for collaborating with a war criminal. There's also the August meeting of the BRICS nations in South Africa. Russia is a member of the BRICS alliance. Whether or not President Putin is allowed to go to South Africa, whether South Africa welcomes him to the meeting is going to be a sign of whether or not this international criminal court accusation and indictment will actually have any teeth and hold. Very interesting alliances developing there. And also in Asia, North Korea fired multiple cruise missiles off its east coast as South Korea and the U.S. held joint military exercises. While U.S. intelligence agencies concluded earlier this month that North Korea had been timing its missile tests to coincide with joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea. Are the U.S. and South Korea concerned over North Korea's actions? North Korea, in its testing of ICBMs to this point, has done so in a trajectory in which they are able to test fire these missiles and they will go into orbit or basically go straight up and then they will come down to an area that's landing somewhere off the coast of North Korea or in international waters or somewhere around there. But What intelligence officials have told Voice of America and some reporting that we've done just this week is that they are looking to see if North Korea is going to attempt an ICBM test, which could test the United States' defense capabilities to intercept it, meaning that now they're going to have to try to see if they can test this missile so that it has a trajectory in which it's a bit straighter, which indicates that it might have the ability to reach the United States mainland. And if they do attempt that test, we'll there be an interception test on our part to intercept that missile, which could dramatically escalate tensions. And so I think there's a lot of people that are watching to see what North Korea does in its next maneuver here in its missile testing. There's also concern about this most recent missile test that they may have been launched from an underground silo, which would then give North Korea a little bit of an advantage if it wants to launch an attack. There'll be less warning if they come from a silo and from underground. The biggest concern here, though, is China had been long relied on to keep North Korea in check. When these things happened earlier this century, when they happened in the 90s, China was pretty much a reliable partner with the rest of the world in keeping North Korea's sights contained. And now it does not seem that China is as willing as it had been in the past to keep North Korea in its place. And that's perhaps the biggest concern that the United States and others have, especially South Korea and Japan have about the situation now. Will China be that reliable partner to keep the peace in the Korean peninsula? With its move closer to Russia, it creates even more questions for the countries in the region and the rest of the world at at large. Yes, and we'll have to continue following those developments. And it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, the Federal Reserve raised its benchmark rate by another quarter point as the world catches its breath after two tumultuous weeks in the global banking sector. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. 
Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com slash issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish and VOA Midwest Correspondent Kane Farabaugh. Well, all eyes were trained on the Federal Reserve as it raised interest rates by a quarter of a percentage of a point, exactly 10 days after the Biden administration stepped in with dramatic emergency actions to contain the fallout from two bank failures. So what does this mean for Americans? It means that they're going to be paying a little bit more for any money that they're borrowing. It means that credit card interest rates and auto loan interest rates and anything else that you want to borrow money for to pay for is going to cost you a little bit more. What it will also do is show that the Federal Reserve is still laser focused on trying to lower the inflation rate. They see that this as perhaps the biggest threat to the American economy, rising prices, much more than the problems in the banking system. We saw several banks fail. We also have a major issue with Credit Suisse. It was bought by UBS earlier this week. The Federal Reserve is saying inflation is still our number one issue, and we're going to keep on tackling it by also saying it's only a quarter of a point instead of the usual half point rise in interest rates. They're also saying, hey, we understand that there's a little bit of concern about the banking industry, so we're only going to raise interest rates a quarter of a point instead of the usual half point that was expected. There is a bright spot happening right now, though, in the U.S. economy, and it's counterintuitive, I think, to what is happening, and it's in some ways providing some difficulty for the U.S. Federal Reserve to understand how it moves forward in this policy. But right now, people are pouring into the housing market in the United States. Prices for the first time dropped about a half a percent for the overall median price of a home in the United States. And that is the first decline since 2012, first time in a decade. And so sales of existing homes in January have risen 14%. You're seeing an increase in home purchases, a decrease in the price. And I think that's probably factoring in the fact that uh, the cost to borrow the money to purchase the homes has increased. But even in the last several weeks, mortgage rates have declined, despite the fact that the cost to borrow money has increased. So at least in the housing market, it's showing signs of robustness and promise, while other economic issues kind of play out as the Federal Reserve determines how they move forward with their economic policy. Some very good points that you all have raised, but let's get our last topic in. In the face of his mounting legal troubles, former President Donald Trump has promised to stay the course on his 2024 run for the White House, even if he's charged with a crime. So the question still remains as to whether the former president will be indicted. And right now the grand jury is weighing considerations. So what can we expect out of this and how is this affecting the Republican Party? Let's take the indictments first. Right now, there's a grand jury sitting in New York City that is listening to testimony about whether or not President Trump should be charged in a hush money payment to a porn star 
back in 2016. The case was considered by many observers as dead because the previous district attorney in New York City let the probe die. He's been replaced by another district attorney who has revived it. And now it seems like the ex-president is on the precipice of being indicted for this. It may be illegal. He may be convicted for this. And many Democrats are concerned because they wonder if this is going to be the first indictment of the ex-president. There are grand juries sitting in Georgia. There's a grand jury sitting here in Washington, D.C., listening to testimony about the president's actions in trying to overturn the 2020 election. And Democrats are concerned that if the porn star indictment is the first one up, it's going to take away the impact of indictments of trying to overturn democracy. And that's where the state of play is as far as the possible legal actions against ex-President Trump. As far as the Republican Party is concerned, there's a concerted effort that the Trump camp has made to get other Republicans to defend the ex-president on the possible charges of paying off a porn star. Many Republicans are saying that there's overreach by the prosecutor. There's a move in Congress by the Republican House of Representatives to call this district attorney in and question him about his motives and why he's doing this. Right now, many Republicans, including some who are considering running for president against Trump for the Republican nomination, they're kind of somewhat supporting the ex-president in his fight against this, but they're not going to support the ex-president as far as his attempts to overturn democracy. The interesting thing here, and I'm going to take an overhead view of this a little bit more than focusing on details of this. If you're a Republican voter, no matter where you're sitting in the country, and you're watching these circumstances unfold, let's say that you voted for Trump before, at what point does all of this just become weary noise and distraction? And at what point does somebody say, I'm just tired of this? It doesn't matter if he did or didn't. I just want somebody who's going to win the election and help my party get into the White House. There is growing indication that there is a large sector of the Republican Party that is starting to take that view. While they might defend Trump and look at it as government overreach, he's saddled with this background and Trump makes this about himself. It's an election about personality and it's a party that will choose based on Trump's personality. And there's people that are attracted to that personality and they want to support him. And he has hardcore supporters in the Republican base and they will help him in his primary campaign. But there is a growing sector of the Republican Party that seems to know that they need to have a candidate that can win a general election, somebody who is going to be appealing or at least palatable to people who voted for Biden in the last election. Somebody in the Republican Party who's going to be a voter heading to the polls, not just for primary ballots, but a general election ballot wants to see is someone who can win. And that is win the general election. Very interesting observations there. And I now want to move on to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists. So, Kane, we'll start with you. What is weighing on your mind this week? Well, I think we've all heard the news that former President Jimmy Carter has decided to enter hospice care and that care is being provided to him at his home in Plains, Georgia. 
I've had a long relationship with former President Carter. I've interviewed him more than 20 times. We had a personal relationship, too. And so the news is personally sad for me, but it's also professionally dramatic as well. So I've been preparing reports and some material to prepare for developments as they occur in covering the story about his life and his legacy. But there's interesting news this week that came forward. Ben Barnes, who is a former Texas member of the Democratic Party. He was a protege of former Texas Governor John Connolly. Some might know that Governor Connolly was in the limousine in front of John F. Kennedy when he was assassinated in Texas in 1963. He was an icon of the Democratic Party in Texas, and he switched parties in the 1970s and became a Republican. And notably, he challenged Ronald Reagan for the Republican nomination for the presidency in 1980, and he obviously lost. Reagan became the nominee. But in order to get Connolly into the fold, the party had him trying to support Reagan and trying to go out and campaign for Reagan. And Ben Barnes, who was a very close ally of Connolly, traveled with Connolly to the Middle East in 1980. And he asserts that they were on a secret mission to meet with leaders in the Middle East. I mean, among the leaders they met with was Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel. And Ben Barnes was there with Connolly in those meetings And he told Peter Baker with The New York Times in a story that came out this week that their mission was to tell these leaders to encourage Iran not to release the hostages before the election so that it would help Ronald Reagan ostensibly win the election and that the Iranians would get a better deal negotiating with Ronald Reagan instead of Jimmy Carter. It's long been assumed that this had happened, but this person, Ben Barnes, and he was a Democratic lawmaker in Texas for a long time. He is the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, saying that you know he was there in person when these things happened and saw directly Governor John Connolly telling these people to not release the hostages. And so I think it's a dramatic underpinning of a dirty campaign to undermine the 1980 election. And this confirms something that people in Carter's administration have asserted for a long time, that the Reagan campaign was trying to undermine U.S. foreign policy by telling people not to release the hostages until Carter was defeated in the election. And many of us know now the hostages were not released until the moment that Reagan took the oath of office in January of 1977 and became president. That's when Ayatollah Khomeini released the hostages. And so it's just you know an unfortunate sort of confirmation of something that people have assumed that had happened for a long time. Very interesting. Thank you. And Steve? Funny you talk about the hostage crisis because my start in the news business happened during the hostage crisis. In fact, I worked with a wife of one of the hostages in my first job at the all news radio station here in Washington. And it's come full circle because this is my final week at Voice of America, my final days as a working journalist. I'm retiring after 43 years in the news business. So what's weighing on my mind this week is gratitude. I'm eternally grateful to you, Kim, to my colleagues at VOA, to my former colleagues. I've had a great run. It's been a great, great career being a journalist. I've seen a lot of the world. I've seen a lot of the great hotel rooms in the world. But it's now time for younger journalists to bring the audience the kind of fact-based, reliable, accurate, comprehensive news and information that they've come to expect from Voice of America. So thank you. Thank you, Kim. Thank you to our audience, our vast audience, our growing audience for allowing me and my colleagues to serve you with the kind of reliable accurate and comprehensive news and information that you have expected from Voice of America for these 80, now 81 years. 
And thank you, Steve. You have not only been a great reservoir of knowledge regarding U.S. and international politics, but you've been a lot of fun to work with and a very nice person. And I'm sure we all are going to miss you. And Kane, I hope you can join us again soon. I will terribly miss Steve. It's been an honor to work for him and with him at least these last 15 years at Voice of America. And it's always an honor to join you on this program, Kim. And uh, Steve, it's been a pleasure just being able to share the news of the world with you on this program and throughout our career, at least one I've shared with you here at Voice of America. Well, thanks to both of our panelists, VOA executive producer, Steve Reddish, and VOA Midwest correspondent, Kane Farabaugh. I'm Kim Lewis, and please join us next week for more Issues in the News. 